Hello, everybody, and welcome to Sweathead. You're with Dot Harantilia for today. I've got Jill Applebaum, CCO of Wonderman Thompson in New York, and Kieran Ohatz of Leo Burnett Chicago, EVP ECD of that agency right there. So we've got the both of them today, and they're going to give feedback to four strategists from the accelerator session. Jill, what are you looking for when a strategist presents to you? A simple explanation of the opportunity, the business challenge, a little bit of background. And then when it comes down to that kind of key idea or that line, a springboard where, you know, I may not in that moment when I first see it have amazing ideas, but I can use my brain to assess pretty quickly. I could see where that could go into a lot of different places. So an open enough idea where you don't already know the answer, but you know, there will be many possible answers. Kieran, what about you? I would echo a lot of what Jill said. One of the first things I do is try and envisage some work that could come off of what I'm seeing. And the thing that I really look for is the distillation down to a, a really sharp point of view. That's one of the things that I see the most is uh, strategic approaches that are very broad, but maybe haven't distilled down to like a specific point. And that's something that I'm always looking for. So let's get into it. Dolce, introduce yourself. Hi, everyone. My name is Dulce. I am currently based in Chicago. I am a brand strategist at a pharma advertising agency. So my main strategy point is around pharmaceuticals and healthcare. And I'll be presenting today my strategy for Vivitrol. So just to dive right in here with strategy story. So Vivitrol is a monthly injection that treats alcohol dependency by blocking the opioid receptors in the brain to help people with alcohol dependency to abstain. And despite most Americans uh, abusing alcohol through binge drinking, it goes largely unnoticed outside of what you might think a typical binge drinker to be. What you don't see is that binge drinking is not exclusive to the young 20-something trying to keep up with their fraternity. In fact, two-thirds of alcohol poisoning deaths are adults between the ages 35 and 64. So thinking about that one fact, you know, between the ages of 35 and 64, let's let's put ourselves in their shoes. It's not easy for you to not see yourself as a binge drinker. You haven't attended a college class in decades and you can't remember when the last time you went out to a club. It's easy to justify drinking a bottle of wine at your son's soccer practice or lose track of how many beers you had alone because you've been social distancing and thus are being responsible. After all, you're an adult, not a kid still trying to figure out adulthood. Life is more stable and you are more comfortable because you are the authority. Drinking is a means to add a little fun back and uh, break from the monotony. Alcohol helps you focus on the bright side, take the edge off and feel something different. You work uh, hard show up where you need to, do what is expected, and that deserves a reward. Everyone is telling you that you've made it, but Bevertrol knows there's more to you than what is on the surface. Sure, you're no longer in your early 20s with all the freedom in the world, but you've become so much more. You've lived through the ups and downs, and Bevertrol helps you break the harmful cycle that puts everything you've worked hard for at risk. Bevertrol teaches you the best parts of life don't need justifying. So the four points that I came to is the main problem being the typical binge drinker today doesn't look like a typical binge drinker. The insight is that binge drinkers are everywhere you look, not just in bars or frat houses. And the advantage that Bibutrol brings is that it strips away these false pretenses. The strategy is Bibutrol helps you take back your identity. 
Yeah, what we're aiming to do with uh, the creative brief itself and the campaign is market to our audiences that BB Troll is for them. And in doing so, get them to recognize that they are the target audience of binge drinkers. So these are the binge drinkers who are beginning to accept they are losing control with their alcohol use. They are stuck in a cycle of needing justification to break up their life, something that can be trusted to bring about a good time. However, deep down, they know they are trapped in a cycle that has more bad times than good, but they know they need to help getting out of it. So our insight is that binge drinkers are everywhere you look, not just in bars or frat houses. It could be within yourself. And our strategy is to show how Vivutrol can help uh, these people take back their identity. And the proposition behind the strategy is that Vivutrol understands recovery isn't overnight, but nothing worth achieving comes easy. And the proof with Vivutrol is how it works. It blocks the opioid receptors in the brain that can be triggered by alcohol and uh, create that sort of need cycle for it. The tone that we're looking for for this campaign is to have a genuine, non-judgmental friend that the audience can come to anytime for a reality check to get you to break the cycle. And the success we're measuring the campaign against is for increased requests for Vivitrol prescriptions by 10%. And we have our mandatories, uh, typical within the pharma space, having the brand name, logo, the important safety information and, and fair balance throughout, as well as the efficacy claims as well. So that is what I have for Vivitrol. Uh, hopefully I didn't go too fast. Kieran and Jill, would you care to share your feedback? One of the things I really like about how you started this off was it started off with a reframe of the problem and a reframe of the situation. So I think the way that you were telling a story and starting with a point that was maybe the opposite of what I might have thought about it, it was an instant way to sort of get me engaged. The upfront story felt like it could have been a little bit more succinct. Like mm -hmm. I had a couple of moments where it felt like the story was getting quite involved and quite layered and detailed. I think if this was like being presented to like a like a creative team, like having that be really conversational would have helped as well too, I think, because it's just a way to sort of draw people in and get them to lean in. I like that like we boiled down to in the problem was like a really clear sort of reframe that just kind of tweaks my expectations because that's the thing that makes me lean and look for things that create things that people maybe don't expect. Like when I got to the advantage part here, the stripping away the false pretenses part, I had a little bit of trouble connecting that back or understanding how that connected into the other parts of the strategy. But I feel like the narrative was sort of still carrying me through at that point, mm -hmm. if that makes sense. And I was really yeah. gravitating towards that problem and towards the strategy. Now, when I got into the strategy itself, I thought it was really clear and really well presented. The thing that I found really interesting here was that it felt like in between the strategy and the proposition, there were two different places that I could potentially jump off from. And they felt like almost slightly different thoughts. I felt like taking back your identity as a way to think about this felt really interesting to me. I, I could sort of see something coming off of that. But then the proposition being understand that recovery isn't overnight, but nothing worth achieving comes easy. I think that felt really true, but it felt like a different thought in a different direction from where the strategy was coming from. I hope that's helpful. I, I really enjoyed hearing you like talk through it. And I love how compelling that reframe is. And it was just interesting to sort of dig into. Great. Thank you so much.
Um, I'm going to jump in. So, I mean, I agree with a lot of that. I think that, um, you know, I love when brands kind of look at a new audience and try to, you know, really speak to a, a specific cohort because it just, you know, you can kind of have so much fun with their passion points and, you know, kind of where you message can be very easily tied into the what the messaging is when you're so clear on who your audience is. One thing I felt could maybe be improved is the connection between the insight and the strategy here. So I might argue that that's not really an insight. That's more of a a part of the audience. Binge drinkers are everywhere you look, not just in bars or frat houses. I think the insight is just more around, you know, you can justify that bottle of wine that you're having at your kid's soccer practice or whatever you had in that background. And then just one other thing I want to suggest is sometimes... It helps to make a brief more visual. There are so many excuses that I'm going to speak for moms here, myself being one of them. We make for maybe pouring that extra glass of wine. It's like, you know, that those jokes and memes and gifts about it. They make wine glasses this big as like uh, it's five o'clock somewhere. And I, I feel like many people are probably consuming more alcohol than we realize is okay, And we don't really even know where that line is. But it's all over culture, almost giving you that permission. And I feel like if that was tied in here, it would be a lot more fodder and and a lot, maybe like a clear, you know, image of the problem as we see it on TikTok and on Instagram and out in culture. I definitely agree with you. Making visualizing the story is a very key part of the briefing process, especially when you're briefing the full team. My approach that I take it and feel free to, you know, uh, expand my thinking behind it or provide a different perspective is when you present the brief itself to, you know, the lead creative director, you want to get to the bones of it before you visualize the story and get everyone on the same page. But definitely agree this would uh, evolve into one of those more visual storytelling, taking examples from culture, key points from the research that I gathered to brief in the, the full creative team. But I agree that there's more opportunity within this document itself to bring that in. Got it. Yeah. And I do love that idea of, you know, kind of a a loose one for starters to have a good conversation about that's invaluable. So I agree with you there. Chris, introduce yourself. It's nice to meet everybody. I'm Chris Kennedy. I am a former creative agency creative turned creative strategist at a social media company. And we're here to talk today about the city of Philadelphia. The client for this gave us a very specific problem wanting to find ways to recruit remote tech workers, which totally makes sense for the now that we live in. But when we started thinking about Philadelphia, a lot of different images came to mind here. I'll walk you through some of that. So thinking about Philadelphia, Philadelphia has always been one of America's iconic cities. But in today's remote work-friendly world, being an iconic city really isn't enough. Not when research shows that dirty and dangerous, what some people call Philadelphia is almost too lawless for remote tech workers to move here. It'd be a waste of time for us to try to make Philly a, a great destination for all remote tech workers because uh, beaches and tax havens are a great destination, but Philly is no beach and it's not cheesy like these guys. Besides, not all remote tech workers really want that highfalutin cliche of beaches and tax havens that suburbia dreams of. Some remote workers actually want to live rebel lives, the type of people that I'm talking about here. They're that college friend who 
while everyone else went to go work in sales or finance. Instead, they went westward and backpacked abroad in search of what this whole life thing is about. Nowadays, they're allergic to staying in for the night. They know all the best hole-in-the-wall burrito spots at the edge of town, and they love spinning up tall tales of true chance encounters. They are untamed at heart. They believe that settling for the norms is kind of joining the living dead. Yet they also believe that being a little lawless is a much-needed middle finger to norms and rules. Um, They kind of believe this notion that being untamed makes every day a little less monotonous, a little less numb, a little less suburban. They believe that being wild at heart is where new ideas, new experiences, new stories are born. Wild at heart remote tech workers believe that being lawless makes every day a little more alive. Now, other destinations think the North Carolinas of the world, the Austins of the world, the Nashvilles of the world. They want to try to sell their story in a pseudo-rebellious way, saying stuff like suburban life. Hell, we have beaches and bike trails that you'll try for a month and you'll realize you're just pretending to be outdoorsy just to fit in here. But in Philadelphia, we don't pretend. From the founding fathers giving the old middle finger to England to the are who we are swagger of our beloved 76ers, Philly has been untamed since the day it was born. Philadelphia doesn't need to pretend to be other destinations. It needs to find the remote tech workers who were untamed at heart and show them that Philly is a place where each day promises to be something new, wild, and worthy of being their next true tall tale. Philadelphia is the modern day Wild West of the East. And so as we started really thinking through that, it really brought us to trimming this down to a really simple four points here, giving us this problem that we pushed on purpose of pushing that notion of the dirtiness and the crime problems that we hear in the media all day that connotes this lawlessness. And that lawlessness might scare some tech workers away. So we really landed on that being our problem. The insight here is that with lawlessness, there's also kind of a rule-breaking nature to it and kind of a middle finger to this safe, normative, almost boxes and boxes and boxes world. But what was really interesting about that is that Philadelphia, as we all know, we all have met some Philadelphians. They've been untamed since the day they were born, and so has the city, which really led us to this notion of this strategy that in some ways, Philadelphia is the modern day Wild West of the East, which is broken down in a very similar way here in this creative brief. Thanks for your time. And I would love any feedback that you have. Okay, I'll jump in first here. I thought this was a great presentation. I loved your kind of Steve Jobs, you know, just show the pictures and tell a story. I think that this is a great springboard for work, creative work. I also loved how you dimensionalized the idea of Untamed with the Founding Fathers and the 76ers line. I think the only action-oriented piece of feedback I have is to make this maybe wording a little bit more call-to-action-y or, or action-oriented. So we'll show that Philly, it's, you're really trying to turn Philly into the wild west of the East, make it clear how you're going to get people engaged, which is just to word it in a more action-oriented way. Yeah, Chris, I love the way that you told this story. It kind of really, and as somebody who's not originally from the US, I really appreciated the context that it gave me. I feel, I feel like you went deep enough to tell me everything I needed to know without going so deep that it was like anything was unnecessary. So it felt like really tight as a story to tell. 
the one point in the introduction, just when you're telling that story, setting up the difference between you know the people that just want to live in suburbia or hang out on the beach versus these people with this rebellious spirit, I felt like you could have turned the corner a bit harder then because I feel like that's when I'm listening to the, the brief. It's the thing that makes me go, wait, there's a different group of people out there. And I wanted to sort of understand and sort of dimensionalize them just a little bit more because I feel like I, I'd probably come into this brief with a preconception about what a tech worker is. And I think you're shifting that, but making that shift feel dramatic. So I'm kind of like going, oh, well, okay, I'm thinking about this in a bit of a different way. I also completely agree with Jill on the on the strategy line, like just making it making Philly the modern day world west of the East. I thought that was a great point. I feel like you answer this when it comes down to the strategy, but I got, like the other thing that just occurred to me here was that it was the problem was that it was too lawless for remote tech workers to move here. And the insight was it's got to then be a like like a cohort of like there are those tech workers. I feel like one of the points you're making is you're not trying to get every tech worker in, but there is right. a particular type of person. Making that person kind of come out and feel like a key part of this brief is I think part of what makes me go, oh, I can look at this in a different way and there's something else here. And totally. that's the thing that that makes it feel different and gives me something great to jump off. One thing I find really interesting about this is that it feels almost like it's got the tone of like a like a spirit brand for something completely unexpected. I really I really like that how it feels like it's it's almost borrowing like a mood from another category, which I think is awesome. One more thought that you just made me think of Kieran is um where you talk to these people could be interesting. You know, right now they're probably in where are they? Silicon Valley, you know, New York, you know, where are you trying to pull them from and how do you tailor communications to them because we know that about them. So I don't know if role of channel is something that you'd want to put into this, but I feel like because these people are so specific, they're remote tech workers, they've got a specific mindset. There just might be a where you talk to them component to the creative work itself. Totally. With the strategy, modern day wild west of the East, is that too much of an idea or maybe even too complicated? How do you feel about that? Is it sort of nudging too far into potentially creative territory or do you feel it's workable? I feel like it's workable because of the context that's been set up because it builds off that wild at heart notion in the insight. It doesn't to me feel like I just need to sort of write to that. I feel like if that was more of a standalone thing and it didn't have that context, it would feel a lot more like a, like a creative direction more than a strategy. Awesome. Thanks everybody. Appreciate it. Okay. Some few things that we've learned from Jill and Kieran and Dulce and Chris is that we always have to have a strong link between our insight, our problem, our advantage, so that our strategy is stronger and that it pays to be conversational as well with how we present things so that it's easily understandable. If you spend your days trying to get into people's heads, but are interested in strategy classes, books, and events that get into your head, visit sweathead.com. You can pick up the Kickstarter-funded book, Strategy Is Your Words, by me. Find out about our monthly membership, online classes, and the company training that we do. Yes, this was an ad, a gentle, gentle ad. Back to the interview. So we're moving on. Caitlin, are you ready? Introduce yourself. I'm Caitlin Carpenter. I'm a strategy consultant and recovering marketing professional based in Portland, Oregon. I also host Creative Mornings Portland. Thrilled to be here and be sharing creative concept for my brief. I chose something kind of similar to a lot of the work that I get to do consulting-wise. 
So my brief was for citizen science programs. Many U.S. science agencies rely on citizen scientists to crowdsource information and field observations or to help process large quantities of data. So an example of one program that does something like that is called Meadow Watch. So folks who are already going out to wildflower meadows can use a specific website or application to take pictures and share counts of you know, which types of things they're seeing and how many. And that's a task that obviously crowds of people visiting gets accomplished very quickly. You know, a single researcher would spend all year doing just that job and not be able to do anything else. So our task is to get more nature hobbyists to do citizen science projects for Earth environmental science agencies. So this is just a little, the client brief in brief and what I shared with you. And we know a little bit about uh, from other research who tends to do projects like this. So we're looking for non-scientists who live in the U.S., the most likely people to participate are millennials and younger. And because of where we need them to physically be and intersecting with those existing interests, we need them to have a casual interest in some science and outdoor activities. Let's have some examples here. And they already have a high level of appreciation for nature. They're really concerned about the effects of global climate change. And they listen to scientists, but they don't really see themselves as able to contribute or they don't see a connection between maybe like the hike that they're taking and like real data and programs that can help conserve those natural areas. So digging into that, this is the four-point strategy that I developed it's called Beginners. Our problem is that nature hobbyists believe science is for the experts. That's the obstacle we have to overcome. Even if they believe these projects are important, science fits squarely into this other category that they have that they don't see themselves as participants in. The insight is that nature hobbyists might be beginner scientists, but they're already expert observers. And our advantage is that they already have everything that they need to make scientific observations. They are where we physically need them to be, and they we can pretty much count on everyone having a smartphone. The strategy that pulls that together is showing how beginner observations are what lead to expert science. And as a single-minded proposition, nature needs more beginners them back into what they care about and how they can contribute. Some additional ideas to add to build this out into a creative brief are a campaign idea called Zoom Out that shows when you look closely, big things found in nature are made up of small, imperfect pieces that only the close and frequent observer would notice. And as a comms idea, we really need to show up where they're gearing up for all those outdoor activities. So places where, you know, nature photographers get all their lenses, campsite reservation websites, outdoor sporting events, lifestyle brands. There are so many places that we can show up and intersect with this really motivated audience. This is my strategy story. Since I talked to you through most stuff, I'd rather focus on feedback around the ideas. But just to give you a little taste, I'll focus on the, the bolded pieces here that most science agencies don't need more scientists. They really need more regular people. They can do far more quickly as a group than what a single researcher would accomplish in a lifetime. We can really move science forward at a faster pace using kind of this like honeybee concept of, you know, one bee back and forth to the hive isn't what gets the job done. It's the whole hive able to accomplish the same task really quickly working together. Our task is recruiting people who have this deep-rooted connection to nature. They participate as a hobbyist. And so we just have to show them how that contributes to things that they love and get over this optical of thinking that, you know, this work is so important. Only scientists can do it and show them that they really have something in common with scientists, which is their expert observers. All right. I will pause myself there and would love to hear some feedback on how to make this work stronger.
Hi, Caitlin. This is a really small thing I want to kick off with. On the story itself, I felt like I was getting a bit lost in detail in in that first page. I wonder if there's a way to simplify a, and, and almost lead into where you're getting to for the strategy a bit more, especially on that first page. When I'm seeing this as bullets, it, it sort of made me think it was just a list of information. And I start to sort of process it in that way. Like there are facts here that I could probably come back to, but it didn't make me want to engage with it in the same way. But when you got to the point about the last point here, which is they don't see themselves as able to contribute in a meaningful way, it feels like it really sets up the strategy. And you might have as a last point because it's leading into where you're going there. But it felt like it was a bit of a disservice to it to have it be just a point that you you finish on at the end of a list. I would almost rather sort of be told a bit of a story about who these people are and like think about them in a, in a different way and get excited by that. And then as you sort of moved into the strategy itself, I think what I really love about this is how succinct it is and how it's really just, just boiling something down to like a really simple point of view. That notion of like beginner observations lead to expert science, I think is really strong because it is really simple. And it is really just helping me understand what needs to happen here and why it's important. As you started to get into the executional thoughts here, one thing that occurred to me while I was like thinking of this and where my brain sort of went with this was it felt to me like a point that could use some proof. Like if there was some way that I could know that things have been discovered before by the help of citizen science, it would really help me sort of believe that I might be contributing to something really meaningful and really powerful. It would help address the skepticism in, in the back of my head. Can I ask a clarification here? So when you're talking about adding like proof or context, where would be a good place for me to integrate that without diluting kind of the simple? For me, that's where my head started to go creatively. Like, so in terms of when you bring this to life, like, is there a role for not just telling people, but sort of proving out to people, whether it's setting up for them that their input will go somewhere valuable and helping them believe it that way, or talking about a time, like a time in the past when that has actually been valuable. I think helping people understand that there's going to be real sort of meaningful benefit come out of this feels like it could really like supercharge that thought. That makes sense. Thank you. I agree with a lot of what Kieran said, but I guess what, what I'm not clear about is nature needs more beginners. I don't know if let's say I'm a bird watcher or I'm somebody who just loves to be outside and look at wildflowers, or I don't know exactly what these nature hobbyists are doing. I don't know if I would know exactly what that needs me to do, or could it get clearer of like, you're out there every day looking at the things and we need to know what those things are. I, I feel like there needs to be a little bit of a tighter connection between, you know, beginners are great. Beginners can help us advance science. And I think to Kieran's point a little bit like, yeah, but, and what you're doing right now, those proof points, we just need you to document it. We just need you to use an app or fill out a form with what you're doing already. And it can make a big difference. I think the clarity around, so what do you need from me as the hobbyist could be tied up a little bit tighter. I hear that. It's definitely a sticky spot and that would leave creative a little at a loss for what, what does beginner mean? Helpful. It kind of threw in, when we talked about this work, I think, Caitlin, when we were looking at the single-minded proposition and the strategy statement, if you and I were working together more on this, it'd be like, well, hang on, say it again and what do you actually mean? Because you've got the two topics coming together, you know, 
personally am an advocate for there being an idea in the strategy, but not an idea that competes with the creative team's type of idea, right? But just from a language point of view, okay, beginner observations, expert science. When we say that out loud, doesn't necessarily flow. So we would just go back and forth for two or three minutes, probably. Hey, what do you mean by that? Say it to somebody as if they have no idea what we're talking about. So that's one thing here. And then to your question around the proof point, it could come in at the advantage level where the advantage as it's written now is about the hobbyists rather than the brand, right? So usually the advantage, the way I like to do it, would be written about the brand. The proof point could also come as part of the communications plan. Let's say you've got three acts or three parts to the comms plan. One of the acts could be about showing proof that there is this connection from what hobbyists are finding and doing and how it is changing science. So a few things there. Do these people get paid? What's the incentive? Is it to help mother nature? Is it make a little side money with what you're already doing already? I guess I, I'm interested to know. Most, most of these projects are not paid. It's more it's just people who are deeply interested or a lot of them have people discover them and get involved through a deeply personal connection. Like folks who participate in some projects for Alzheimer's research usually find that because when a, a relative is diagnosed and they get interested in like, how does the science happen around this? They're usually pretty personal motivations. My question is, in terms of the proof point, can somebody like a strategist include it in the strategy story so that it flows better? Would that help Jill and Karen for you both if the proof point is somewhere in the story so that when they're explaining their brief to you, it paints a better picture? I love all the thought starters that come from strategy. I think there's always value there. Sometimes the campaign comes from one of those thought starters. So I think that, you know, you, you can't have too many examples or, you know, and I see these proof points as being some of those examples. I was also thinking that when this becomes a piece of work, one of the jobs that might need to do is convince people. Like if somebody's not being paid and they're just putting their own time into it, the more valuable the thing that they do feels, the more likely they are to do it. So it also just kind of occurred to me as like, it could be an opportunity for like, how do you show people that the contribution they make is going to have genuine meaning might be another way of saying it. The strategy story is just, it's a technique that I don't know how common it is, but I started to encourage it because I found that a lot of planners I was working with would just open a creative brief template and start filling it in sometimes mindlessly. And I was like, just tell us your thinking. What have you found? What's interesting? How are you reframing the problem? The strategy story itself, I don't know if I'd always share that with a creative team. I might share it with a client. It's, it's really a working document to try to take your sketchy thoughts in the four points and to tighten them up through the act of writing. So I just wanted to kind of situate it there because sometimes they can seem like manifestos and they're not that, but it's really just like a a personal writing practice to try to uh, encourage strategists to tighten up their thinking. My name is Eric Patillo and account coordinator for a public relations firm. And so I kind of stayed within my wheelhouse a little bit and decided to do this project on an upcoming video game which is uh, PGA Tour 2K23 is an upcoming golf game. To briefly, four points. Uh, well, let me preface that with the uh, problem that PGA 2K23 had initially. Not before this, it got some of the minor details of golf that golfers were, they noticed it very quickly uh, from, the, from the teaser trailer that came out before the game. And it instantly turned off a large amount of people that decided they're going to wait until the next one comes out. So there are a lot of skeptical golf gamers out there. So I wanted to take the strategy to try to reel those uh, skeptical golf gamers back in. 
So for the four points, uh, the main problem is obsessive golfers complain PGA 2K21, the previous game, uh, the details did not feel like golf. And the insight I arrived at is to obsessive golfers, golf's minor details are actually the major details. PGA 2K23's advantage is Tiger Woods is known for his extreme attention to detail and is now the face of the series. And the strategy I arrived at is we want to show obsessive golfers that PGA 2K23 is a golf game worth obsessing over with a Tiger-approved level of detail. Now, onto my strategy story. PGA 2K23 is a next-gen golf gaming simulation. We want obsessive golfers to play it, but 2K21 didn't get details right, and the game didn't always feel like golf. And as a result, those obsessive golfers were turned off to the series. There are different types of golf gamers out there. They're the casual golfers who enjoy golf in real life more as an outing with friends than as a competition. Uh, they like to drink while they're on the course. They don't really keep score. They might say something like, you know, just kick it out from under the trees. You know, we're not getting paid out here. And they also enjoy uh, you know, a fun multiplayer video game as another gathering for friends. And they love the previous title and they're definitely going to love the next one. The more critical fans are the obsessive golfers. These people are competitive in all aspects of life. And they're constantly striving for excellence in both golf and gaming. They know the ins and outs of both. When they golf, they keep score and they know the rules. Each round matters literally and figuratively in the spirit of competition and for their handicap sake. When they game, they play ranked online only. And any unranked play is just a warm up to get ready for ranked. They like to watch YouTube videos to improve their play in both golf and video games and have considered taking lessons from professionals for both. They like winning more than they like having fun. And it's fair to say that winning is having fun to them. And these are the players that are going to keep the online community thriving. They love to analyze the smallest details of their game. They want to play a game that has the depth and attention to detail that they can obsess over. They're comparing PGA 2K23's details against real life golf. And they were eager to get into the previous title, but those aspects that made the game not feel like golf, such as the one pictured here, with the ball teed a little bit too high for an iron, which a golfer is going to notice immediately. It's going to be a huge red flag for them. They're going to spot things like this and decide to spend their gaming time elsewhere. These players have a lot of respect for competitors that can teach them new things and new details about their favorite sport. And there's never been a golfer uh, as detail-oriented as the new face of the franchise, Tiger Woods. Tiger is so detailed that he can spot half a degree just by eyeballing it. And he can tell you the difference between hitting a ball squarely on the dimples versus hitting the edge of a dimple. Other microscopic details that even the best golfers aren't aware of. PGA 2K23 doesn't need to target the casual golfers. It needs to find the obsessive golfers who also play video games and show them that 2K23 is a golf game worth obsessing over with a Tiger Woods approved level of detail. And that is the strategy story. And this is just a little bit of extra details, but I would love to hear some feedback from both of you. Just reading through this quickly. Can I ask where you got to this tone from? It's basically a reflection of how these golfers end up approaching their own game. They love how serious and analytical golf can be. And they had some complaints about the previous title on how it kind of missed some of the serious aspects of golf. There were some moments where it was a little sillier than they hoped for. And because golf is a very analytical sport, 
it was one of the things that they felt didn't really vibe well with basically what they were looking for in a video game. So basically trying to reflect that analytical, that serious preparation that goes into every shot, that would be an angle that these type of golfers and gamers would appreciate. Okay. So they want their video games to be just as serious as the sport in real life. Correct. And is that a, an assumption or is that something that you know from research? This is something I arrived at through research. Because my gut would be turn the negative into a positive. If they've already spent whatever it costs, $50 on the last game, and they didn't think it was good, and now we're saying, but we have Tiger Woods now, and, and it's better, I kind of almost feel like leaning really hard into that would be maybe a creative solution. You know, like find all of the mistakes in the 2021 game and win the 2023 game as a you know top of my head idea, just sort of like acknowledging a little bit of you know, mm. that one was lighter or, you know, more just about lighthearted fun. And this one's more about the seriousness of the game. But if you know that that's not a tone that this audience would be receptive to, then I understand why you've, why you've gone this way. I didn't want to go into this slide because I wanted to stick to the strategy story and the four points a little bit. But one of my campaign ideas was basically something that kind of acknowledged the flaws without directly pointing them out as flaws. Basically, all of the parts that are being improved upon would be the center of the campaign, in a sense. So my idea was to focus on the things like, oh, new graphics, new you know, physics, new things of that nature, and then getting those little minor details that PGA 2K21 didn't get right and putting those as the center to, uh, to attract all those people who were already skeptical just to grab their attention immediately. Okay, well, I am going to go against the rules of feedback that we um, were taught in the beginning of this session. And I'm going to say, I think this is strong. I don't really have a whole lot to add. It's clear you have a reason why you've made some of the choices that you've made. I think Tiger Woods makes perfect sense. And I could see him talking about, you know, his obsession or what that like one millimeter means, et cetera. So I'm going to just shut my mouth and turn it over to Kieran. <laughs> Before Kieran starts, I think, Jill, what you just said is still within the realms of the good feedback that Jocelyn said, because saying that it's clear, it's strong, it has the research, he has a reason, that still validates everything that he has written here. So I think that's still part of the good feedback part. So no breaking rules here. <laughs> and thank you, Kieran. This is super interesting to me because I'm not a big golf person, but I ended up having a creative project that was very golf focused earlier this year. And it made me kind of learn a lot of stuff that I didn't know a lot about. So it's, it's kind of taking me back to that a little bit. Eric, one thing that I really kind of noticed was when you got from your upfront into your strategy story, I felt like the strategy story would actually be a really great way of taking creatives through this, as opposed to how you kind of kicked it off. Like you had a really good way of like telling that story. If you had that as a way of introducing this brief to a creative team, the only thing I'd do there is then make it a little tighter. Like one of the things that I noticed is that you spent a bit of time talking about the people that you didn't have a problem with. And I think that could have just been like a couple of sentences because the people we really want to dig into is the ones who had a real reaction against this thing. I kept on hungering for a couple of things as you're talking, telling that story. And one was if people were sort of outraged at the last game, I wanted to see some of that. I feel like that would have been really great fuel. Like I'm sure there'd be like a, a Reddit thread where someone was like 
just bagging this thing and having those things be sort of springboards. And then especially given that it's all about obsessive detail, I'd want to like start getting exposed to the things that the game got wrong. Like not just hearing that there were like issues, but like when you've got to that point, when you're talking about the T being too high, starting to understand that that is the kind of thing that was throwing people is is really good and really helpful context, I think. So I would even like pull that a little earlier and maybe even have a couple other examples of of what people were sort of getting outraged about. Because I think that knowing that that kind of stuff swimming around in culture, like I think that really gives creatives like something to like leap off from and it, and it sort of energizes the problem and it feels like there's something to really be tackled. And I think that really helps. And then on the strategy itself, I wonder if it's a little more about just leaning into that obsessiveness. It made me want to sort of put like make Tiger part of the solution, but not part of the, it starts to feel a little bit double-headed to me, the Tiger Woods approved level of detail. I'd rather have it be like tight around you're obsessed with golfing and this has got detail worth obsessing over and then working out where Tiger fits in that story. So it doesn't feel mm-hmm. like the core of the brief is, is just about Tiger. It's like an executional mandatory, right? That you'd work with Tiger. Yeah, that makes sense. No, that makes sense. I appreciate that. By way of comparison, I think if we compare this one to Chris Kennedy's strategy for Philadelphia, which involved talking about Philadelphia as the Wild West of the East or the Northeast, that's quite a lateral thought for strategy. This one is about obsession and details, and it's not as much of a lateral thought, but I quite liked how direct it was. Like it's not running away from the feedback about the previous game. And then I think also for a lot of strategists, what Kieran was just talking about, the double-headedness of this, sometimes we struggle with that because we feel that by cutting off a half of the sentence that we're not being strategic enough or smart enough or something. And yet often it's a three to five word phrase that will be the thing that clicks with a Kieran or a deal or their team. And that just takes confidence and practice and feeling like you're working with people who want you to succeed. So awesome feedback. Thank you both. Appreciate it. People from the audience, if you have any questions, um, just raise your hands. I would ask, do you all give the strategist you're working with any sort of idea of what you prefer to see or typical, like, this is how I like to see things when you're doing reviews? Yeah, I mean, I see strategy as our you know, number one partner. I was telling somebody yesterday, as a creative, you grow up with an art director, a writer, partner, and then you get to a point in your career where you're kind of flying solo because you're maybe leading and then I feel like the strategist becomes your person and the give and take and the collective conversations and the, I don't think that insight is as good or I found this thing on Google and then, you know, I want that same early peak under the tent. I love to include strategy in the initial creative reviews, just like you're showing that peak under the tent with the initial brief thought. So there's always got to be back and forth communication. And then you get to that great place where everybody feels like it's as tight as it could be. Who are you? So I'm an account director at a, um, at a life science agency in San Diego, California. I think I deep connect with Dulce because she's in pharma, Caitlin, because she was also talking about citizen scientists. I think I, I understand that sometimes. This is my observation. Like our creative briefs are not as, as fun. And we try really hard to keep them fun with like Jill mentioned, um, you know, TikTok videos or YouTube or just like really salty Reddit threads. And a lot of the projects I work with is with life science researchers, especially in COVID, that it's sort of blown up, you know, just like projects around preventing the next pandemic. That's been fairly key. But I love that you can still have fun and you can still use a problem and energize the creatives. And on my side, my creatives tell me that brevity is my friend and I and my briefs can be fairly lengthy. But then when we have that conversation, as you were saying, I'm like, it's an oh yeah. 
funny you should ask that. It's in the brief because they'll be like, what's the research? Is this your point of view or is this real? And, you know, so on and so forth. So it's been a challenge balancing brevity versus, you know, keeping it specific. I don't have an answer for that, but I was hoping maybe you can highlight one or two tips or tricks that might have helped. To some degree, down to personal preference, you're never going to get a universal um, opinion. I feel like I'm the nerd that'll take all the binders and read them. And then some people are like, give it to me in two sentences. If you can't say it in a sentence, it's, you know, too much. So I feel like you should cut yourself some slack and, you know, probably know some of your key stakeholder audiences so that you can give people what they need. But I wouldn't say that you're necessarily wrong either way that you go. Yeah, that makes sense. Know your audience, even the folks that have to do the work. I think sometimes too, there's a lot you can get across in a conversation and it's working out what role the brief is playing. And one thing I've always loved is briefing sessions where it's not like going through the brief, like line by line by line and just reading things, but you're just having a conversation and then it's the starting point for generating the work. You can get to a lot of information in that context. And then it's like, is the brief then like a a touchstone to just kind of come back to rather than it trying to contain everything that you're trying to say and rather than worrying that if it's not in there, it will like get lost somehow. I I agree. I think they respond well when it's a discussion or a story versus reading a a legal document where it's like, here's this, like you kind of set the mood, like this is doomed to begin with. So that's really helpful as well. To wrap this up, three things I think that we all learned or four things from all of this is that good to keep it simple, good to have a story to tell to our creatives, good to lay it out and get a conversation going, and also to have proof in your back pocket. Doesn't mean that you have to necessarily let them see it right away, but if you have it, show it to them after with an index or something. So that is it. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, Jill. Thanks, Kieran. Thanks, Caitlin, Eric, Dulce, Chris. Thank you for listening to this episode of Sweathead. If it's your first time here, please subscribe. If you enjoyed the episode, please share it with a friend or leave a kind rating. For more information about our strategy classes, events, and books, visit www.sweathead.com. And yes, you can find us on Instagram at, at Sweathead.